And turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, we want to read the entire psalm one more time since this will be our last time in this chapter or in this particular psalm. Let's read it. And this is what the Word of God says, beginning in verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now these are the verses that we are looking at today. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord in reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, so that He not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray one more time together. Heavenly Father, how true it is to say how blessed is everyone who takes refuge in him. Seeing here now that his judgment is so terrible, his warning is so dire, All the more, Lord, we see how sweet His refuge is. How precious. How valuable. And that's what we want today, Lord. We ask that You would exalt Your Son so that we would see Him for the wrath-absorbing substitute that He is. That we would see Him for the advocate that He is before the Father. That we would see Him in all of His glorious mediatorial work as our great High Priest. For as the Scriptures declare, there is only one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. Hallelujah to the Lamb. In His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In one sense... Psalm 2 really captures the entire story of the Bible. The whole message of Scripture, in one sense, can really be said to be here in Psalm 2. We are told of God's eternal purpose in Christ. The whole world, the whole, the whole spectrum of human history is moving towards What Psalm 2 here is promising, that God has promised to the Son to give Him an unshakable kingdom, and that that kingdom is being progressively revealed throughout all of redemptive history until at last that kingdom will result in all the nations of the earth and all the earth itself being given as a possession for the Son. 
Everything will be transferred over to the Son, as it were, to be all His. Nothing will be outside of His dominion, His control, His sovereignty, His rule, His authority, His Lordship. And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, everything now, presently, is in reality, if you really want to know the story, under His Lordship now. Everything is under His subjection now, even though presently we do not see it. But we will. And that is what the whole Bible is about. The entire Bible is about this great glorious unfolding of the kingdom of His Son. And what is so beautiful about this psalm is that, as we've mentioned before, God means to share the kingdom with us. Isn't that glorious? But before we arrive at the comfort of Psalm 2 here, which is at the very end, first we want to see the very nature of the warning that's being issued forth here. Because as we have gone from the hatred of Christ to the confidence of Christ to the covenant of Christ, we arrive at last at the warning of Christ. And the first thing to note is that the warning of Christ is universal. Look at verse 10. Therefore, he says, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. See, it's meant to have an effect as such that we move from the typological level to the universal level, which is really the eschatological level. We move from the, the, from the historical realities in which David himself was living and Israel themselves were living, where the nations that surrounded the chosen race, the chosen people, Israel, they were being put on notice By virtue of God installing David upon the throne, he was putting the the nations surrounding Israel and all of their enemies on notice that God's purpose will stand and that they would not be able to overthrow his people. But that, of course, was just an installment. It was just a kernel of reality in relationship to the great and grand eschatological truth that this psalm presents to us. And that is that, in reality, all the kingdoms of the earth, all the rulers, all the judges, everyone is put on notice that He is coming and that His wrath is coming with Him. Um, What's remarkable about this language here is that just as the hostility that Christ and the church face, so too now the warning of Christ is universal. And in a sense, there's a bit of irony here because just as the kings were those who were tasked with the power and with the job of being discerning and not reckless, here they are warned to have discernment. Now therefore kings show discernment. And similarly, those that were given judicial oversight, the judges, they were, they were tasked with the capacity either to advance righteousness in whatever sphere of influence they had or to lead the people down a path of 
immorality. And here we're being told, take warning, O judges of the earth. The word there for taking warning is literally the language that the judges needed to receive instruction. Isn't it amazing that judges are typically the ones that give instruction to people? They're the ones that actually make a, a judgment calls. They're the ones that actually punish and, and, and dish out judicial right and wrong. And here, the, the psalmist is telling them that they need to receive the guidance or the instruction of the Lord regarding this all-important matter of the Son's judgment. They lack this practical wisdom And because they have rejected the ultimate authority of the ultimate judge, they are themselves devoid of true wisdom. The psalm, however, as it's talking about righting the wrongs that are presently plaguing this present evil age, do not imagine that the psalmist here is thinking about anything like what the theonomy camp would teach. Sorry to have to pick on someone. Because that's not really what's going on here. The psalmist is not promising any sort of temporal fix to the political situation. This is not progressively politically transforming the present evil age into something that is more pleasing to God. Getting more godly judges, more godly rulers, more godly kings, perhaps a Christian president someday. Someday. Absolutely not. This is the language of the eschaton. This is the, this is the language of the, of the consummation of the age. This is exactly why God sent His Son is to put the kingdoms right. Now consider this verse, Isaiah 42. For some reason, we've been reading it a lot today. It's in my, it's in my sermon notes. Uh, Pastor Kaler did not know that. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 4. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. No, no, no. This is a, this is a glimpse of God's renewed earth. This is just, in a sense, metaphorical language of a time when the knowledge of God is going to cover the world like the water covers the sea. In other words, everyone will have a heart to obey. Now, can you imagine a world like that in our present evil age? Can you imagine this earth become, or getting to that point where everyone will have a heart to obey God's law? No, this is, this is the language of the eschaton. This is the new creation. This is when God will be ruling and reigning from His throne for all eternity. This is what all of this is pointing us to. This is a great final reversal where the world's godless rebellion will be quelled and the nations will be transformed in order to serve Him even as Daniel chapter 7, verse 14 declares. This is what Zechariah talked about in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 11, when he says that people from many nations will belong to Jacob. This is God transforming a people for Himself in the end times, which I think we're in. God is 
God is creating a new humanity, preparing them for a new world, to go into a new earth, a new heavens, for all eternity. That is what's going on here. Even as right now, I think we definitely have entered into that phase in our, in our present historical sojourn in this world where we can expect for tribulation to come and for tribulation to increase and for the nations to be in an uproar and for there to be wars and rumors of wars, even as Jesus warned us about. I mean, how many nuclear bombs does Korea have to set off in order for us to understand we're living in a time of wars and rumors of wars? But really, in this temporal world, we can expect for everything to be sort of a, a, a collapse of the present age. Because that is what the Bible says will happen when God gives a world over to its devices. That's exactly what's going on. I mean, think about that. Temporal wrath is only a precursor to the eternal wrath of God that is coming on this earth. I mean, don't we see the evidence of the outworking of God's temporal wrath? Romans, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 puts it beyond dispute that the wrath of God is not something that is just future, but is also already It's already here. We're already seeing manifestations of the wrath of God here and now in this present age. And it will be so until the end of the age. Now listen to this. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which can be known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. What is that verse saying? Well, number one, it's saying there's no such thing as an atheist, because God has shown the reality of who he is to them. At some basic fundamental level, everyone knows there is a God and that they are accountable to him. But look at verse 26. After it goes on and on about the idolatrous nature of creation and creatures, It says, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And you know how the text progresses. You know how it goes. I mean, just in our backyard, you have evidence of this. You needn't go very far. A recent story emerged in Dallas recently here about a kindergarten teacher who was confronted by a group of angry parents at a school meeting because... She had been reading a transgender book to kindergartners because she was accommodating a, trend, a, a kindergarten student who was transitioning from one gender to the next. What? Did I really just read that sentence? It is appalling that we live in a world where such an illustration is not just sort of an exaggeration, but is actually fact. We're living in that stage, that age. I mean, think about it. What's next? We've gone from a sexual revolution to a homosexual revolution to a complete sexual deterioration and collapse of a nation. That's what's happening. That's what we're witnessing. That is the wrath of God in the present age. And the whole world is being prepared for this judgment that Psalm 2 is talking about. And so the psalmist is putting the world on notice. 
The psalmist is telling the world, be ready, get ready, because he is coming to judge the world. So much to say about that. There's also an evangelistic thrust. It's the second thing. Not only is the warning of Christ universal, it's everywhere with all people everywhere, and it extends on into the end of the age, but it is also an evangelistic warning because, notice what he says here, it's almost like an invitation. He says, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Isn't that remarkable? This is precisely what is wrong with the world. The very thing they detest about God is precisely what they need from God. They need to worship God, to be satisfied in God, but instead they will find joy in just about anything. Once a person has surrendered the worship of God, it is unimaginable and it is, and it's really limitless what that person will devote themselves to. There is no end, there is no limit, there is no, there is no telling what, what a person will ultimately de- be devoted to. It's ultimately a devotion of destruction, but the people here are being commanded to show reverence towards God. The, fear, the word there, reverence, is literally fear, uh, to fear God, to fear God and to rejoice in Him with trembling. Isn't that amazing? I mean, this is what real true worship consists of. True worship consists of joy mingled with terror. And what what this is doing simultaneously is that it is leveling an indictment upon the world that the world, A, does not fear God, and B, finds no joy. They do not have any satisfaction. They don't find what they're looking for. Like James says, you lust, but you cannot obtain. It is a chasing after the wind. And what needs to happen instead is that people need to come into the enjoyment of something terrifying. Namely, God, His holiness, His greatness, His grandeur, His infinity. That's what's missing so much today in the Christian church. Very few people fear God. And that's why very few people are actually willing to risk for God and go for God and be sent for God and live hard for God and live holy for God because there is no fear of God. I'm talking about in the church there's no fear of God. How can there be fear of God in the church when the church is involved in some of the worldliest forms of entertainment, dress, fashion, all the above? No, what what the Scriptures is calling us here is to a deepest kind of communion with God that, that, that that mingles in perfect balance here, fear and joy mingled together. That's what true worship is about. Really, to give you a very pathetic and and sort of finite example of what I'm talking about, it's sort of like the picture that you get when people stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon. It's kind of the the picture that you get when people are, are, are literally looking through a window and gazing at the lightning and the thunder and the encroaching of a great storm. You're scared. But you're amazed 
You stand at the edge of the Niagara, Niagara Falls and you are, you're standing at the wonder of the power that you're beholding and you, you come to the edge of the railing and you hold on, but, but the joy is keeping you there. Uh, several times I've visited El Capitan in Yosemite. Big, giant, huge rock. And at night, if you look at the highest parts of that rock, you see little flashlights coming on. And there are rock climbers who have literally, on a flat-faced mountain, have literally somehow anchored to the side of that mountain, have erected a cot, and they're sleeping on something about a foot and a half long, hanging on the edge of the rock. And I'm thinking, what in the world would somebody want to leave? I'm having a cup of coffee on a wooden deck at a cabin. Why would I want to be up there? What keeps them there? You know what keeps them there? Joy and trembling. They fear, but they delight at the same time. And the delight is worth the fear. And the fear causes them to respect and to reverence the delight They take it serious. They buy expensive equipment. They go through extensive training in order to fully maximize the enjoyment of that kind of fear. It's like a good fear. It's an adrenaline-pumping fear. But it's good, (laughs) supposedly. Remember, this is an illustration. This is not personal biography. But we can all sympathize with that. Hurricane Harvey... I saw a video of them flying overhead and looking over the massive, massive cloud formation of a terrifying sight. A storm so powerful, a monster they called it. And yet, they loved to behold it. See, the nations, this is what's wrong. They are marveling at the wrong thing. They are marveling at the, at, at the creation instead of the Creator. And therefore, they lack this wonder. They're marveling at the work of their hands. They're marveling at their idols. They're marveling at their toys, their fashion, their technology, their city, their industry. But they fail to marvel at the infinity of God. Our gospel has to include the potential for people to know and to, and to understand that what we're presenting them is unspeakable, eternal joy. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4. Because this goes down to the very practicality of a conversation. This comes down all the way down to a personal encounter that you might have with your co-worker. And it might look something like this. John 4, Jesus answered the woman. If you knew the gift of God and who it, who, it, who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where, do you, where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? 
who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And then haven't you ever been in this exact situation? Verse 15, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. You see, she misunderstood that what Jesus was giving her was the potential to, to meet her felt needs. Sir, give me this water so that I will not have a bad marriage? Sir, give me this water so that my finances will get straightened out. Sir, give me this water so that my children will not suffer. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be afflicted with cancer or disease. The gospel is not simply addressing her inconvenience. She missed it. Oh, it's to me, I found it very comforting to know Jesus encountered the same kind of baffling blindness that I encounter in a sinner after I've just presented to them the most glorious, eternal, magnanimous truth in all the universe, eternal life. And they tell me, sir, maybe I'll visit your church. I didn't tell you to get religious. I offered you eternal life. I offered you the very precipice of life itself. I offered you the greatest, the the, the pinnacle rather, of life. I offered you the all-satisfying work of Jesus Christ. I offered you heaven. And you think I'm offering you getting rid of your dysfunctional family. That, That is not. That is not what the gospel is about. It is not about meeting people's felt needs. It is about replacing rebel forces in the heart of man that that seeks to displace God as the ultimate source of satisfaction in someone's life. That's what the gospel does. And that's what the nations are missing. And that's what everyone is missing When he says kings, judges, or earlier rulers, all of these peoples, he is, of course, he's speaking about those who are in positions of power and influence, but of course, those people then represent a whole people beneath them. It is the whole world that's being put on notice here by the Son. And the Son's warning. It's not just universal. It is not just evangelistic where we are offering something to someone. It is also urgent. It is urgent. And what that means is, well, there's a double application here. It is urgent. And so that the sinner is on high alert. It is a a crisis hour for anyone to be born and to live. My daughter, who was just born, was born into a crisis. That's why the first words she ever heard in the hospital, 
let's move away the nurses and the doctors, but the first word she came that came out of her father's mouth, I grabbed Eden with my hands and I said, Jesus is Lord. You need Jesus. Doctors looked at me like I was crazy. It's absolutely true. Not only is my daughter in a crisis hour, everyone is that is born. To, to, to live a life and to, and, 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 and to die a death is an awesome thing. And this world labors day and night nonstop around the clock to get you to take your mind off of that awesome reality. It is an urgent call. Because look what he says. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry, and that you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. You see that? That means that as much as, as, much as the church of God may be oppressed, as much as... If you go back to verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. Right? As much as the rulers and the, the kings take their counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, as much as they may scorn and mock. If you go back to Psalm 1, as much as they may reject. What this psalm is telling us is that, is that there is coming a time where God will no longer tolerate the abuse of His grace. There is coming a time where it will be too late. And this is why the warning of Christ is an urgent warning. It is not passive. And what I said, it's a double-edged sword. It means, of course, the, the sinner, the unregenerate is in, a, is in a crisis hour because of the warning. But so is the church. Because it is an admonition to us that our evangelism is not passive. Oh, God, help us because of our lukewarmness and how easily we forget the world around us and our busy little lives that we have in our own little homes, our own little things, our own little schedules, our own things that we have going on. May He show us that no, it's urgent. You don't know how much time will be left. You don't know how much time your, 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 your family member has, your neighbor has, your co-worker has. You don't know how much time the person has that's walking by on the street. And I've seen this. I've preached to people that have died days after I evangelized them. And it was like a punch in the stomach to say, yeah, this is, you know, this is crystal clear right now. But the reality is, is that it was crystal clear all along. It was that if that young man wouldn't have died and illustrated this, the reality stands is that God's word has already told you that everyone is in a crisis, that life is short, life is like a vapor, time will run out, the nations don't have all day. People don't have all day. And what do people say? People will tell you, oh, I have time. Maybe I'll get religious later. Maybe I'll have time for church later. I'll put it off. Maybe I'll get religious when I'm older. But this psalm assures us people do not have time. Time is exactly what they don't have. So what do they need? They need to show reverence to 
the sun. Do homage to the sun. And literally the Hebrew word literally means kiss the sun. Kiss the sun? Well, that was ancient parlance for bow down, submit, uh, show reverence. That's why it goes along with the context of reverence. It's saying, know who you belong to. Understand, recognize His authority. You know, if any of us, as much as we may hate our political leaders, I don't think there's a single president that has ever occupied the office that if you were not immediately ushered into the presence of, you would not be overcome with a sense of reverence and respect and dignity and Am I, am I together? Because they're about to bring me into the Oval Office. Can you imagine being ushered into the throne room of God? Imagine being ushered into the tribunal of heaven itself. You cannot prepare at that point. It's too late. You need to prepare now. You need to get yourself together now. And of course, you know what I'm saying. It's not that you get yourself together, but you must repent and believe. That's the only way. Once again, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. What this psalm is telling us, brothers and sisters, is that it's not that it's just simply what the nations ought to do, what people ought to do. The reality is, is they ought to do this because in reality, one day they will do this, whether they like it or not. Right? Philippians chapter 2, I read this in Sunday school, I'll read it again. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Verse 9, for this reason also. God highly exalted Him, that's the Son, and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, who is Yahweh Lord God, at His name every knee will bow. That's your knee, that's my knee, that's the knee of every person in this city, in this country, on this globe, that has ever lived, ever will live. Everyone will bow the knee. I don't care if Elon Musk makes it to Mars in one of his little rockets. He will bow the knee to the sovereign king of the universe. Can't breathe on Mars anyway. Why does he want to go there? You can't escape. You can't descend down into the depths of the ocean. Behold, he is there. There's nowhere for you to go. You will bow the knee to Him now or you will bow the knee to Him later, but only later it will be a submission to the Son of God that will be enforced upon you where you will crumble like a crust of bread before His presence. That is why we are being summoned to kiss the Son now. We'll get get there. That's not the end of the story. Some of you, maybe you're visiting and you're thinking, what an awful church. Bow the knee. He will crush you. He will what? What kind of church is this? Well, it is kind of a funny church, but we preach the Bible. 
You see, every single Christian in this church can drop dead tonight, and this lives. You have to reckon with Him, not with us. Everyone will bow the knee, those who are in heaven, those who are in earth, those who are under the earth. So the doomsday preppers, they got to bow. Everybody got to bow. Every tongue also will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord before a sinner goes to hell for eternity. He will become an orthodox theologian in the presence of God. He will utter the truth before he is consigned to hell. Everyone will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is coming, in other words, such a great magnanimous reversal, such a terrifying eschatological appearance of Jesus Christ that it will humble the whole world instantaneously. Sometimes in the Bible, the judgment of God is something that is relegated to the Son. Sometimes it is something that is relegated to the Father. But really, in reality, it is a joint effort. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 15, that really just goes right along with this psalm. You know this verse. It says, The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong, every slave, every free man, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountain. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. From the great day of their wrath. That is, Father on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. The great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Isn't that that magnificent? It is the wrath of the Lamb. It's almost as if deepest significance, right? In the judgment of God. When we see the judgment, when we stand and we witness and we we encounter the judgment of God, we will see that it is the Lamb. And who is the Lamb? The Lamb is the one who was brought to be slaughtered. It was the Lamb who was slain. It was the Lamb who came in utter meekness and humility. It is the Lamb that has gone from His earthly humiliation to His heavenly exalted session at the right hand of God. It is the Lamb of God. Irony of ironies. Paradox of paradox. Mystery of mysteries. And people trifle and they trifle and they trifle with God. And the church is not gripped with fear and the world is not gripped with fear. All over the headlines I'm reading detestable, the burning man thing. And what it is, it's just a a, a colony of hippies that go, and, and, and don't get me wrong, these are some of the wealthiest, most powerful people in the world who pay lots of money to go into the desert to fulfill every debauched fantasy in their mind for who knows how many days on end. And the, the whole ceremony ends with them lighting a giant stick figure on fire that if I understand it correctly, that is supposed to symbolize their willingness to burn in hell. 
and we have problems talking about the judgment of God, oh, judgment is coming. Paul says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. There's coming a day where God will say, stand up, take your beating like a man. You're about to be judged and be cast into hell. You paraded, you mocked, you scoffed, you lifted up your head, you strutted around in your wickedness, and now the time has come to be humbled, to be judged. It's going to be breathtaking. The judgment, the awesome judgment of God. It's going to be, I can't even, that's it. End the sermon. Say the prayer. How can we even, who's sufficient for these things? But we have one more glorious thing to talk about. Look at the end of the, look at the end of the psalm. Look at the end of the verse, verse 12. It doesn't end with that. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way. The way means the way of your sinful behavior. Isn't that amazing? Perish in the way. And so what is He saying there? What He's saying there is this, that this way means and speaks to the fact that the judgment of God will be perfectly appropriate. In other words, the way means that when, when he says you perish in the way, and oh, I was so frustrated this week. You know how many commentators tackled that phrase right there, perish in the way, and did extensive, exegetical, expository, biblical, deep biblical study into what that means? No one! I had a stack of commentaries this big, and I was like this. Somebody talk about this. The very little I got just from Greek le- uh, Hebrew lexicons and just a couple of commentaries that slightly mentioned it is that it's something like saying that God is going to confirm you in your unbelief, in your rebellion, and in your hell-bound trajectory of life. He confirms you in that. Perish in the way. In other words, it will be perdition for the lost. It will be damnation for the damned. It will be hell for the demons and the demonic. What this tells us is that the son's wrath will be terrible, thorough, and appropriate and just. No one will go to hell who does not deserve to be there for eternity. I know it's awful. And I know that most churches don't want to talk about it. They don't want to reach it. They don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Can't feel the pews. Can't feel the offering box. If you're going to stand up here and elaborate on the torments of hell, or as Jesus said, the gnashing of teeth. But He said it. And if He said it, we have to say it. But that is not the end of the story because we serve a gracious God. Isn't it remarkable that after we spend a little bit of time contemplating, meditating upon teaching and being taught about the awful wrath and judgment of God, one word about His grace is like water to your lips. It's so soul-satisfying, soul-reassuring. It is, what does it say? A refuge. 
It is meant to draw us in to the fact that in light of this great wrath, this impending wrath, how then, how quickly should someone turn and seek refuge and safety or shelter and hide under the sun? If you can't hide under the mountains, hide under the sun. Find refuge in Him. There is no hole deep enough that you can dig on this planet that you will, that you will escape the judgment of God. But Jesus Christ stands ready to shelter you, ready to protect you, ready to absorb the wrath of God for you if you will but believe. Repent. Believe. Jesus says in Mark 1.15, He came preaching the gospel and saying, the time is at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand, the time is fulfilled, therefore repent and believe in the gospel. Yeah, that's right. My dear friends, listen, what you need is the very simple childlike Sunday school level story that God loved the world, sent His Son, He died on the cross, He rose again. Put your faith in Him. Turn from your sin. Turn from the things that will drag you down into perdition and turn to Him by faith and you will be saved. He is a refuge. He is all satisfying. One last scripture. Uh, You know I had to preach my guts out. It's the last verse of Psalm 2. Revelation chapter 22. Because John tells us that what the nations need so desperately will be abundantly supplied when the curse is removed and the blessings of God flow from His throne in true global peace and prosperity. Verse 1. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was a tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So, I'll come back. There will be no longer any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in uh, in it. And His bondservants, that's us, will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. That, by the way, is supposed to be something of an antithesis to the mark of the beast that is either on a person's right hand or forehead, which shows some sort of ultimate allegiance to this present evil system, this present evil world. Well, in heaven, we will have a mark on our forehead, but it will be the name of the Lamb. And there will no longer be any night. They will, no, they will not have any need of light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them and they will reign forever and ever and ever. What is this telling us? What's this telling us is that man was created to dwell in in, in unapproachable light. Man was created for the purpose of dwelling in the most soul-satisfying presence of God in the place of ultimate satisfaction, of ultimate purity, of 
perfect life. It's not by in the sky. You live like that? Let's get down to brass tacks. In this world, right now, in your life, do you live like heaven will not satisfy you? Do you live like it's not worth living for? Do you live like the reward is less than the, 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 the mind, uh, uh, mind-bending, I don't know what you want to say. It's mind-boggling. It's incomprehensible delight, joy, glory, satisfaction. This is the only place you're going to find that. If you're looking for little remnants of that in this world, through technology, through fashion, through money, through possessions, through family, through something, through a country, through patriotism, through whatever, you're not going to find it. It will always elude you. It It will always evade you. Because that type of satisfaction is meant to be found only and exclusively in heaven. After those who have bowed the knee and kissed the Son have been justified and glorified and now come to deepest communion with God. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray a special prayer and I want to repeat what Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1. Oh God, open the eyes of our heart so that we would understand your power and the greatness of your inheritance in the saints. If we believe that about heaven and if we believe that about where our souls are meant to ultimately be satisfied then by your grace and for your glory, would you loosen our grip on the things that presently in this life we think we are going to derive pleasure from. And may we, by an act of faith and with the hand of faith, may we lay hold of that which is life indeed. To know you. To know you. And to make you known. In Jesus' name we pray.